Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special crossover event. This is basically Law & Order Now Play Network edition. And we have <laughs> the hosts of three of the podcasts that are available there coming together uh, to pay tribute to one of our long-lost friends who has left us, not just us, but all of you, something very, very special. And want to introduce everyone right now. We have Mr. Jim Laskowski from the Directors Club podcast. How are you doing, Jim? <laughs> Oh, I wish we were gathered here under better circumstances, but we are paying tribute to a really special human being. Yes, so honored yeah, to be here. We absolutely are. And then we also have Colin Suter from Christmas Movies Actually. Hello there. I feel the same way Jim does. Yeah. It's never going to get easier. We're a few weeks past the, the sort of the initial information and shock of all of it. But, you know, maybe we've reached the celebration point. That's the way I tend to... Look at these things, especially that there's so much to celebrate, that there's oh, yeah. so much that Sergio left us. It just you look around, you know, you throw a rock, you're going to find something with Sergio's name on it out there. And, you know, we're all going to, you know, talk about Sergio. He's been on all of our shows and we've been on his shows. But, you know, Colin, you know, this is something that you got Sergio to do during the pandemic, so why don't you tell everyone why we are all gathered here today? Well, I, I won't get too deep into the weeds about how this came about because Sergio does that at the top of, of the commentary track. So I'm not going to repeat repeat anything that he's already going to say. But yeah, it was during lockdown when we had nothing to do. And I sort of, uh, sort of half jokingly said, why don't you record a commentary track for this movie? Like, it'd be kind of fun. And he went ahead and did it. And it is one of the great gifts that he left because it was nothing he was getting paid for. It was nothing that he could put on his you know, resume or anything <laughs> like that. It was just for his friends. And so this is a, a DVD, if there was a DVD, <laughs> legitimate DVD anyway, commentary track for one of the most controversial of all Disney films, if not the most controversial, Song of the South. And... Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty unique that, that we have this. And uh, I'm thrilled that we're going to finally, like, share it with the public in a way that I think Sergio would be pleased with. Yes. And, and just to be clear, we're sharing his commentary track only. We're not sharing the movie itself. Uh, anyone out there who maybe you have a version of it somewhere out there or you can find a version of it somewhere, you can tag, you know, just like you do with a number of commentary tracks that are available online. You can tag up Sergio's track at the end of this introduction here. We'll do a countdown, and then you can start the the commentary with your DVD or your video file, where, wherever you might have, have it. Or you might not even need it at all. You could just sit back and listen to Sergio talk about Song of the South and hear just another insightful bit of commentary and Jim you know, he, he was on the director's club several times talking you know as we all do about very specific directors and you know I bet there are just opportunities with him that you could just sit back and you could have just disappeared for a while because you just let him go exactly that's very true and in fact these days I've been listening to commentary tracks like I would podcasts <laughs> and just I mean it's it's definitely better when you're watching it with the movie playing but at the same time, it's you know, a little easier to just yeah go for a walk and listen to someone like Sergio be the amazing commentator that he was. I mean, 
it's it's a challenge to know how to sum up an entire life like his because it's just full of so many accomplishments and it's you know it's hard to put that all into words and and it's it's a case of you know anyone who connected with him reached out to him they've had nothing but kind things to say and you know this is and I don't want to make it like oh about my feelings but at the same time I'm really struck by Sergio's gifts as a storyteller and certainly as a lover of film in ways that we should all truly aspire to be, but he was a natural, an absolute natural at just talking and, and, you know, coherently without, without too much rambling. He was just, just one of those people that you looked forward to having on your show because you knew he could do most of the heavy lifting in case you have a brain freeze or something, you know? I, mean, I just think of the the time after the horrible George Floyd tragedy. I wasn't sure how to deal with all these complicated feelings I was having at that time. And I thought to myself, well, there's this film with very complicated feelings that Sergio loves and knows a lot about, and that would be uh, Paul Schrader's Blue Collar. And he didn't hesitate for a second to join me for, for that discussion. And we talked about a lot and not just about the movie, I'm just so grateful that all of this exists out there in all of our shows. And, you know, certainly I'll, I'll never forget the, the, you know, the last time we recorded together, he actually made me tear up when he talked about how much he related to um, Terrence Davies, the long day closes. And he, he got emotional and he, he always seemed to with that particular film. And I know Eric, he rightfully got emotional talking about his dad when we uh, recorded episode 100 of your show, and that was a very memorable moment, among many. Yeah, I mean, Sergio had kind of this persona, this, you know, I don't know if I'd call it tough guy persona, but, you know, maybe man, <laughs> maybe man's man, you know, sure. Sergio sort of, but there, there was that, that soft side to him, and those of us who knew him well knew, you know, when it would come out. And, you know, it would come out at, you know, very specific emotional times and whatnot, and he loved his, loved his dad, Sometimes it'd be about film or something like that, or sometimes just be having friends. I've, I've witnessed that a few times as well, you know. But just thinking about his commentary tracks, which we're going to mention a number of the ones that he's done, just so people know where to find them. I mean, he's when you think about it, he's only been doing the com- commentaries, like actual official commentaries on Blu-rays, for just a few years. It's really just been the last th- three or four years, maybe that that he's been doing it, and. I just I, I keep keep thinking that he was well on his way to being the king commentary guy. Like he, I I don't even know what if there are statistics out there that tell you how many commentaries any individual has done. But I bet if you gave him a few more years, he'd be in the top ten because oh, yeah. <laughs> he just he and, and not to say that he didn't turn down commentaries. Thankfully, he gave one over to me for career opportunities, which he'd never again. He never. I mean, I, I'm telling you, like, just a few weeks before he passed, he was looking up that Kino chart and telling me where career opportunities ranked on that sales chart. It was just a few weeks before he he left us. Yeah, and it just, again, you just, any any one of his commentaries, and he was very, you know, I he, he was always very proud of his commentaries. He loved looking up reviews. He was he was that kind of guy. He, <laughs> he loved to look up people said say fine words about him. But he was he really liked it when friends of his uh, listened and gave him feedback on it, and which I did every time. 
and there was always there was never any less than a pleasure to listen to any of his commentaries because you you know that he just wasn't taking a break. He was just flying through it. He yeah. would just, you know, he would start and, you know, when a movie ended, he'd go through the credits sometimes and yeah, and that's, you know, Colin, do you do you have any particular favorites among some of the ones that you've heard him do? I I can't say I do like of any favorites, but I'm I'm glad that you pointed out earlier that that this that you could just kind of listen to the commentary even without watching the film Song of the South because that is definitely true in this case because it's not terribly scene specific. I mean, there there is a little bit of that where he tells you to kind of watch for this transition from live action to animation, stuff like that once in a while or pointing out an actor that's on the screen, but then he'll just go into the history of that actor or the history of where this movie fits in, in in the Disney history or, you know, you know, why, why the controversy of this movie is so, you know, it just never dies and why Disney won't release it and everything like that. You know, it is very much, he, he, he would lecture on this movie, mm-hmm. you know, he, I, I believe at the Cisco center. And then I, I'm not sure where I, I can't remember where he specifically said he gave lectures on this movie, but that's kind of what this really is. It's just, it, he happens to have it on also. And, you know, there are places you can get this movie. There is, like, if you go on Amazon, look up Song of the South, you might find a couple editions of it that maybe they're not from Disney or legit, but there's, some of them are, um, I think, overseas and imports and things mm-hmm. like that where, where <clears throat> this controversy doesn't exist. You know, we were just talking about, we, we just, Carrie and I just recorded a tribute episode to him that is out right now. You know, we play clips from our show, and that's kind of our way of paying tribute to to him. And anytime he got on a podcast and and talked about the movie, you felt like you were listening to a commentary track of the film. And you know, it could it, it could you you could easily play it alongside a movie, and it would be a lot of fun. It, it, it's very it was very easy taping with Sergio, and I think you can both attest to this that sometimes you'd almost miss your own cues. That it's your turn time to talk, and you don't want to talk over him, but just, he was—you just want to let him go. And 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 Jim, you can again probably talk about this too with a number of the directors that he talked about that tackled controversial directors and things like that on your show as well. And you know, Sergio, sure, with you know, with with something like Song of the South, and he also lectured on like Birth of a Nation, and that he would point out troublesome areas but he was against censoring or canceling mm-hmm. these types of movies he would always fight for these the existence of these movies and for them to be out there so people could have those conversations instead of just tossing them aside and saying like oh i don't want to deal with that so i'm just gonna you know throw in the garbage there is something to birth of a nation or song of the south or a number of the blackface cartoons and dance musicals and things like that that Sergio would talk about on Turner Classic Movies. Do you, do you remember any time on, on your show, Jim, where you talked about something that was problematic? Well, I, I, I do remember us talking a lot about the various films of Nicholas Ray, and it wasn't necessarily like something specific controver- that was controversial, it was just a film like Bigger Than Life. We were pointing out, you know, how dark something like that was for the time. And you're you're so right in just like highlighting the fact that that he had such an open mind and just wouldn't necessarily veer into 
full-blown negative territory, or he, he wasn't dismissive. And I appreciated that so much about him. Like, I remember even when we disagreed on an episode early on, he was not a fan of Inside Lewin Davis, and I absolutely loved everything about that movie. And he had this take on it that was like, I think the reason why film critics are responding to it is because they can relate to Oscar Isaac's character. And I understood where he was coming from, from that perspective. I, I just I just feel like he cared about, you know, the art form, but certainly connecting with other people in a way that was never disingenuous. It was just kind of like, you love movies, so I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And that goes for anyone who had him on his show. You, you were excited to hear what he had to say. And somehow he would integrate his own life into a lot of these movies, too, which is something Ebert did so well with his reviews. I just equate the two now. You know, I really do. I, I, I think he's right up there with Ebert <laughs> for me as a, in terms of being a hero, you know. Yeah, and you know, I, I think about you know that very first commentary that he did for Penitentiary, which is a film mm. that he worked on, so he had very intimate knowledge of that film's production history and everything. And to think that for all the twenty years, twenty plus years that him and I did radio together, and how many times we brought up the movie Dragon Slayer and <laughs> joked, "When's this thing coming on a Blu-ray? What you know, what studio is going to put it out? Disney, Paramount, you know, settle your dispute and all that." And we, we kept you know, saying, like, Shout Factory, call us. We'll do a commentary for you. And I, it just, it kind of goes to show you just, we're, none of us are getting any younger. And I, I don't know if it's a foresight or it's just the right opportunity, but getting him to do that Dragon Slayer commentary on episode 300 of the Movie Madness podcast, I look at that as just something that I'm going to treasure forever that we got to do that together because if if we hadn't and it was still sitting in my brain for 20 years that we never thought to do that and i don't know call it prescient or you know good timing whatever it might be but that's i'm I'm so glad we got to do that together and so that he left that the song of the south commentary and you know why don't we you know go through do we have a list of all all the commentaries that he's done Oh, really quickly, I, I think my favorite might be the first one I heard of his, and that's, you know, for Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope. Yeah. And I, I I was feeling very melancholy watching the latest episode of Atlanta because Sergio adored that show, and I know him and Nick DiGilio would would text back and forth about it, but I was watching the latest episode thinking this is their take on Putney Swope. Really, and Sergio would have loved everything about it, and he would have had so much to say. But I am so grateful that he's his commentary, you know, lives on for that particular film, and I'm glad it's out there. Who, who released that one again? Was it? Is that Vinegar Syndrome? Oh yeah, Vinegar Syndrome. Syndrome. Right. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, it certainly is. There are a lot that I'm like eager to listen to that I that I haven't gotten to yet. Because I gotta buy all these. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's I get these. So like, yeah. it's a, you know, so there's a like ton that I've never listened to. Penitentiary, yeah, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, The Vinegar Syndrome Edition, yeah. Lilies of the Field, Moment by Moment, which we kind of get <laughs> razzed on him a little bit about, but yeah. he was very proud of it. Havana with Robert Redford, another one we kind of teased. Oh him yeah, about, but hey, Skullduggery. 
Lily Dynamite, Mary Queen of Scots, Gambit, Bustin' Loose, Putney Swope from Indicator's uh, edition of Putney Swope, which you just mentioned, A Man Called Adam, uh, One Potato, Two Potato, The Don is Dead, The Pale Face, and The Warlord. Oh, That's, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of those, again, Vinegar Syndrome, Indicator, a lot of them available on Aquino. So, yeah, but they're all available on Amazon in one one form or another. So everyone, mm-hmm. so yes, buy all those, put all those in, into your your carts or whatever. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna leave you with this really special commentary track here that he did for Song of the South. So, Colin, why don't you take us into it? All right. So, cue up your whatever version of Song of the South you happen to have. If you have the Japanese laserdisc, which is the first way a lot of us saw Song of the South uh, in the nineties that great import that made its way overseas here. If you have that, uh, you're SOL when it comes to the side change. So you're going to have to <laughs> figure that out if you're actually watching the Laserdisc. So cue it up. We'll, we'll give you a chance to pause this and, and cue up your disc or whatever it is you have and give you a countdown. Okay, here is the countdown. I'm going to go three, two, one, play. When I say play, that's when you hit play on your remote. All right? So three, two, one, play. So hello, everyone. This is Sergio. Sergio Mims, if I have to tell you. And I want to welcome you to this special... Well, technically it's not a DVD commentary, but this is a movie commentary for Walt Disney's 1946 very controversial movie, Song of the South. Now, how this all came about very quickly was that uh, our dear friend Colin Suter has been really kind enough to be signing us every week a hard-to-see, relatively overlooked, underseen picture to help us pass the time while we're in lockdown or quarantine or shut-in or whatever they're calling it nowadays <sighs> during these trying times. And uh, two, about two weeks ago, Colin sent us Song of the South and uh, I responded to him jokingly, oh gee, you know, I wish you had told me you were going to do this because I would have recorded a commentary for you. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Of course, being the fact that, as some of you may know, I have been doing DVD commentaries for several labels um, over the past two years. As a matter of fact, I have two coming out, one in June and another one in July, and I got a few more lined up. It's a whole new world for me. But um, I am fascinated by this picture. I wrote an article about this film in 2015, and then I wrote another one again in 2017, and in between that time, I actually lectured on this movie for a class at the University of Chicago. So I guess it's safe to say that I know the film pretty well. I think it's a fascinating movie. Um, one that I don't think deserves the treatment it's been getting. I'll get to that later from Walt Disney. Um, let us just see the damn picture. Anyway, I'll get to that later. Um, and so I said, this is for really between us. This is going to be sort of informal. Um, 
I probably will make a couple flubs along the way. You know, please forgive me. Once again, I'm being informal. And of course, I'll be making references to various movies that have some relationship to this film. For example, this movie has not one, but two Citizen Kane connections. Uh, first of one is you're going to see right here. This is Ruth Warwick. Uh, actress appeared in a lot of movies, had a decades-long career. And you might remember her as the first wife of Charles Foster Kane in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Uh, but perhaps her greatest claim to fame was the fact that for many, many years, she was a regular on the long-running ABC soap opera, daytime soap opera, All My Children. Now, the black actress you're seeing here right there, that is Hattie McDaniel. And Hattie McDaniel was really remarkable person. Now, of course, because of this time, uh, she was almost certainly, most of the time, relegated to servant roles, you know, happy, contented slave roles. I, you know, her most famous roles, the role as Mammy, in Gone with the Wind, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. It was the first time any black actor had been nominated for an Oscar. It was actually the first time that any black person, period, had been nominated for an Oscar. And she was the first black person ever to win an Oscar. Now, just to show you the kind of the dignity she suffered, um, at the... Oscar ceremony in 1940, the awards at the time were held at the Coconut Grove Restaurant, which was in the um, Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And the Ambassador Hotel had a no blacks policy. That's absolutely right. I mean, even though it was a liberal LA, black people were not allowed in the Ambassador Hotel. So they had to give her a special compensation for her to attend the awards ceremony. And even then, she was placed all the way in the back with a table for one of one other person. And it was next to the kitchen door. And I should say, not surprisingly, this film premiered, as I said, in 1946. It was November of 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia. And Hattie McDaniel and James Basquette, who plays Uncle Remus, we'll get to him, um, and any other black performer in the film were not allowed to attend the premiere of the movie in Atlanta. Just as Hattie McDaniel also was not allowed to appear at it was not allowed to appear at the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta in 1939 in Atlanta. Like I said, she constantly suffered all kinds of indignities. She appeared in over 300 movies in her lifetime. Um, only 80 of those she was actually credited. You actually saw her name in the credits. She was um, born in Wichita, Kansas in 1893. She died in L.A., in 1952, six years after this movie came out, uh, a little bit of trivia. She was married four times in her life. Uh, none of those marriages lasted more than three years. Um, her 
starter career was rather interesting because she started out as a singer and a songwriter. And she also performed with her brother, Sam McNeil. And Sam McNeil also appeared in hundreds of films, almost always uncredited. Usually degrading roles, servant roles, slave roles, waiter roles, that sort of thing. Um, I recall him, he has a brief scene in the beginning of Dodge City, the Michael Curtiz 1939 film. Uh, and I, actually, I think he, he appears in one or two Three Stooges shorts with Curly, among the many other films he did. But anyway, the story is that Sam McNeil had a traveling troupe of performers. And he finally went to L.A. And she decided to follow him to see if she could get a job in show business. Um, and for a while also she performed with her brother in their comedy troupe in Los Angeles. She wound up uh, getting some radio parts and film roles, but they paid so little that she actually had to work as a cook and a maid while she was performing on radio. But um, eventually she started getting more and more work and as I said before, she appeared in some 300 films. Um, there have been some attempts in the past to make a movie of her life, but they've never panned out. And despite the degrading roles that she played, um, and actually the reason I'm talking about it so much because she doesn't really appear that much in this picture. So let me sort of like get it out of the way first. Um, she was really, in a way, a pioneer for many black actresses who came after her. So, um, we're still to the picture. We haven't talked about the film yet. As I told you, this film premiered in November 1946. It premiered in Atlanta, uh, basically because of the connection of the movie and, uh, and the stories. And since we're on that, might as well tell you about, some of you perhaps don't know, what is the deal? Who was Uncle, Re Uncle Remus? What What are these stories about Breer Rabbit and Breer Fox and Breer Bear? And what is this all about? Well, it's interesting. I start talking about this at this particular scene in the movie. This is young Bobby Driscoll. I'll get to him later on in this commentary. He's one of those unfortunately sad... Hollywood stories. You've heard him before of a young child actor who is has great success and then can't find work and then loses his way. I'll get to him and of course there is James Basquette who we're about to see. I'll be getting into him. Did not appear in a lot of movies and um, also actually died tragically very young. But the reason I said it was interesting we have this scene where you have little Bobby Driscoll. There he is right now, wandering among the slaves, even though technically they're not slaves. I'll get to that too. Is that, let me tell you the story of Joe Chandler Harris. 
Now, Joe Chandler Harris, he was born in Georgia in 1848. He died in 1908 at the age of 60 uh, from cirrhosis of the liver. Um, even though his great success as a writer, he couldn't, I guess, get rid of all his demons. And um, as I said, he was born in Georgia in 1848, and... When he was a young teenager, this is during the Civil War, from about 1862 to about 1866, um, he wound up working on a plantation called the Turnwald Plantation, which was owned by uh, a guy by the name of Joseph Turner. Sorry, I had to write that down. Joseph Turner. And Joseph Turner... Um, was a newspaper publisher, among also being a slave owner and um, owner plantation, and he published a m newspaper at the time that was very very popular in the South during the Civil War called The Countryman. And Harris was working on his plantation, and I should say that the paper was published on the plantation, and Harris got a job working for the paper. As a, what what was then called a printer's devil. Now, a printer's devil is a fancy word of just being is saying he was a gopher. He did everything. He uh, set the type. He helped to set the type. He uh, inked the plates. He went and got got coffee. Whatever he had to do, um, he was a gopher. Um, and during his spare time, he would hang around the slave quarters. Now, people who defend Harris say that the reason he was so attached and loved to hang around the slaves because he was, he felt himself was an outsider. Uh, Harris was illegitimate. Uh, he never knew who his father was. His mother wouldn't tell him. And uh, at that time, that was a great, great shame, a great, great scar to be an illegitimate child. But then my point is that, yeah, he may have sympathized with the slaves, but then again, you know, they were black, he was white, there were slaves, he was, and he always go back to his nice, comfortable bed at night while they had to work in the fields. But, let me continue on. I may go off the tangents here, folks, you gotta forgive me. Um... So he would hang on these slave quarters in his spare time. He spent hundreds of hours with them. And he would hear these stories. These stories of folklore and songs and tales that the slaves told each other. These were stories that really originated in Africa. From whatever African region their ancestors originally came from. And throughout the decades, while they were in bondage, in slavery, these stories changed and were adapted and actually many of these stories actually dealt with their situation but it was done in a coded way so that the slave owners and the overseers wouldn't catch on to what they were talking about and usually many of these stories dealt with freedom dealt with overpowering their oppressors and um, many of the characters were in animal form, such as Breer Rabbit, Breer Fox. Now, Breer, it's sort of like a, a, a colloquialism of the word brother. So, Breer 
Rabbit is really Brother Rabbit, Brother Fox, Brother Bear. Okay, so Harris heard these stories, and he was fascinated by them. And then about 10 years later, sometime in the mid-1870s, he was writing for a newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution, which he stayed for practically most of his life. And he decided to start writing a weekly column. Well, he, he had a weekly column, but among the stories in his column, he would start telling these stories. Now, of course, he rewrote them, and also he tried to approximate the black dialect that the slave black slaves spoke of at the time. Now, that really sort of fascinated white people to no end. They thought it was interesting. But um, these stories, and I should say, he couched these stories with this fictional character he created called Uncle Remus. And in these columns, in these stories, the premise was that Uncle Remus was a friend of Harris, and he would come by to see him, and he would tell him these stories. Eventually, these stories were compiled. Um, Harris wound up writing about nine books on these, these folk tales, these stories, and something close to 200 of them. And they didn't sell at first, but eventually they became very, very popular. And they were, eventually became a huge success into the 20th century. And it was one of these books that got Walt Disney interested. When he read it as a kid, and he always remembered it, and decades later he had the idea to make it to a movie. Now, I love the lighting here in this scene. And... I'm going to bring up the other Citizen Kane connection in this picture. But before I do that, I want you to see this cut. This is one of the most marvelous juxtaposition cuts I've ever seen. It's so smooth. I, I can't even break it down. This is when we're going to go into the first animated sequence in this picture. Sorry, don't worry, folks. I haven't forgotten you. There we go. That's a marvelous cut. That's a really marvelous cut. And, of course, now we have the song Zippity-Doo-Dah, Zippity-Yay. Um, I'll get to who wrote this song in a minute because I got it right here somewhere around here. But, um, needs to say, this song became a phenomenal hit. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1947. Uh, it was covered by so many different artists and so many different singers. I think people even still sing it today. Uh, the two writers who wrote it, and I will get to them in a minute if I can't remember who wrote the songs. Uh, yes, it's also written by Ali Robel and Ray Gilbert. Now, the song was actually inspired by the song Turkey in the Straw. And Turkey in the Straw, of course, you probably know the song. It was a 
Nobody really knows who originally wrote it, but somehow it appeared sometime between the 1820s and the 1830s, and it became very popular. Now, there was a white, blackface minstrel performer by the name of George Washington Dixon. And George Washington Dixon, um, first of all, claimed that he wrote the song originally. He did not. But he later took the same tune and wrote new lyrics called new lyrics for it for his minstrel show minstrel show called Zip Coon. Now I'm not gonna tell you the lyrics. You can look it up for yourself. But with that title you you can tell it was pretty offensive. Remember once again we're talking eighteen thirties. And then there's even an even more offensive version of that song. Turkey in the Straw. But, let us continue on. Um, here we have Breer Rabbit. Breer Rabbit is voiced by Johnny Lee. I know that. Johnny Lee. And Johnny Lee was a black singer, performer, actor. His most well-known role was in the radio and TV version of the comedy Amos and Andy. He played the role of Algonquin J. Calhoun, who was this crooked chyster lawyer who always had some kind of scheme up his sleeve. Now, since he's here, we might as well talk about Jane Basquette. Uh, as I said before, he didn't make a lot of movies. Um, he was born in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1904. He um, originally wanted to be a pharmacologist. And he couldn't get the money to do that. So he wound up becoming a performer. He went to New York. He appeared on Broadway and appeared in several race movies at the time. Uh, to explain those, race movies were these very low-budget, independent films made by some black filmmakers, such as Oscar Michaud and uh, Spencer Williams. And also white filmmakers as well. But these were black films made for the segregated black audience in the South, but actually just over the country. Segregation was not in the South. Remember, I told you about the situation with Hattie McDaniel and the um, Ambassador Hotel. So, uh, eventually he goes to L.A. in the mid-30s. Ways of getting bit parts here and there, nothing significant. Um, and what happened was that Walt Disney, and I'll go a little bit more in detail about the background of this movie, how the film got started. But Walt Disney, um, when he was preparing to make this picture, uh, he originally wanted Paul Robeson to play Uncle Remus. And Paul Robeson, I, I I can't go enough into Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was one of the most extraordinary persons who ever lived. Um, a, a Rutgers graduate, a law school graduate, All-American. Um, one of the most incredible voices ever, baritone, bass baritone voices. I mean incredible voices. Of political activist, uh, civil rights activist, 
Um, he was blacklisted in the 1950s because of his association with liberal causes and also with uh, uh, he had went to he went to Russia several times and and uh, he's just an extraordinary person. Uh, made several movies in the 1930s, um, but originally Disney wanted Paul Robeson. And he decided not to because Paul Robeson by the mid-40s was politically uh, hot because of his leftist politics and his activism. So then he went to approach Rex Ingram, another distinguished black actor, uh, played the Lord in the film version of Green Pastures. I also believe, I think he may have been the Broadway production. Um, also has a fantastic role in Sahara, the uh, Humphrey Bogart World War II film. Uh, also played the genie in the lamp in uh, Alexander Korda's uh, The Thief of Baghdad with Sabu. I mean, this is wonderful sequence when he's finally released from the lamp and Rex Ingram starts saying, you know, I'm free, I'm free. And that image of this black man saying, I'm free, it's, he, it's more than just a genie out of the bottle. It's, uh, Rex Ingram turned this role down. Rex um, turned, um, uh, oh gosh, Uncle Remus down. He turned him down. I said it was going to be flubs. He turned it down because uh, he felt it was degrading. So along comes James Basquette. And what happened was that James Basquette had been doing work in Hollywood. He was doing bit parts. He was also doing voiceover work. Uh, actually, he voices one of the crows in Disney's Dumbo. And he auditioned for one of the voices in this movie. As a matter of fact, he also voices um, Breer Fox right here. But um, Disney heard him, heard his uh, voice. Uh, recording when he auditioned and liked it and approached him about playing the role in Uncle Remus, which uh, he did. Uh, played the part. Now, um, Basquette at the time was, when the film was made, when the film came out, he was 42 years old. And if you see it, you go like, wow, he looks a lot older. Well, part of it is makeup. The other part of it was Basquette himself, he was really in very ill health when he made this picture. He um, was suffering from diabetes and heart disease. And uh, this movie took a lot out of him. And as a matter of fact, he died in 1948 um, at the age of 44, just two years after this movie came out. Now, uh, interestingly, he, in 1948... He also received an Oscar, a special Oscar, for his performance in this movie. Um, you know, understand me, he, he wasn't nominated as Best Actor or for any role. He simply got, was presented this Oscar for his performance in the movie. Now... That may sound strange, but it really wasn't that unusual. Uh, and the reason why was because at that time, 
studios and publicists had a lot more power at the Academy than they do today. And they could arrange for a special Oscar to be given to somebody or to a certain film really for publicity's sake. And that's really what it was. I mean, for example, in 1942, um, a special Oscar was presented to MGM for the Andy Hardy movie series, or the Hardy movie series. It was a series of 15 movies that were made from the mid-40s to the mid... uh, Yeah, from the mid-30s to the mid-40s, starring Andy Rooney, about this small town family and uh it got it was it got a special oscar for representing the american way of life quote unquote in reality it was the stunt that mgm cooked up to promote the movie um just like the oscar was presented to basket to promote the film and also to the fact that he wasn't well and disney knew that perhaps he was he perhaps wasn't going to live long so he kind of arranged for him to get this Oscar. As a matter of fact, he got the Oscar for, quote, for his able and heartwarming characterization of Uncle Remus, friend and storyteller to children in the world in Walt Disney's Song of the South. Now, I was mentioned the lighting here in this scene, and I wanted to get back to the lighting because this is the other Citizen Kane connection. The cinematographer on this movie was Greg Tolan. And Greg Tolan was, without question, without question, one of the greatest cinematographers of the 1940s, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Um, He shot some 66 films in his career. He started out in the silent film business in the mid-1920s. He was born in 1904 in Illinois. And um, among the movies he shot uh, are Citizen Kane, as I mentioned, Weathering Heights, for which he won the Oscar. He was nominated six times for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. He only won for uh, Weathering Heights, a Best Years of Our Lives, the William Wyler film. He shot a lot of Sam Goldwyn pictures. Uh, for Fox, uh, he shot Grace of Wrath, also 1940. Um, Grace of Wrath, one of the most beautifully photographed movies ever shot in black and white. I think even surpasses um, Citizen Kane. Uh, just the opening scene and Grace a Wrath alone will make you awestruck. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. Uh, in, 19, in 2003, he was voted uh, one of the top 10 most influential cinematographers ever in film history, along with James Wan Howe, Sven Nykist, uh, Vilma Zygmunt, uh, Gordon Willis. Uh, tragically, like James Pesquet, he died in 1948, also the age of 44, of a heart attack. Uh, way too soon. But um, some of the lighting here in this movie is really quite subtle and uh, and beautifully done, beautifully rendered. And you have to give credit, all credit to Greg uh, Tolan. Now, I got to stop here because this particular scene is really interesting because um, the controversy, of course, about this film is 
how black characters are portrayed in this picture. Now, I said earlier that technically they're not slaves, even though they're living on a plantation, they're living in slave quarters, and the reason I say that is because this movie actually takes place after the Civil War. Um, you got to pay attention to it because you may not notice it, but really, it, it takes place after the Civil War. So, technically, they're not slaves. They're basically old, friendly helpers. You know, farm workers. You know, there's no even, there's not even any indication that actually they get paid for their work. And by the way, even though slavery was technically over, which is what the Civil War was all about, and black people were technically, I put that in quotation marks, free, slavery did still exist in the South, in one form or another. Now, of course, many black people left after the war. I mean, of course, they couldn't wait to get out. Uh, they went north, they went east, they went to the Midwest, they went west. Right? But still, many, many black people stayed. And hopefully thinking that it was going to be a better time. And then, of course, we have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which the film does not address. I should say the first appearance of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the second one was later on in the 20th century, um, around in 1915, when Birth of a Nation came out. Uh, and Birth of a Nation, that's a film that one day, oh boy, I would love to do a commentary on that. But, um, but this friendly attitude, like everybody's all friends here, the, ser the black servants, and white people, it's totally unrealistic. But this is the fantasy that these movies created. Many films of this period, 19, well, starting from the silent era, but from the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s, this image that, well, slavery wasn't bad. You know, I mean, it was just these really friendly black farm workers who were just grateful and happy to be working on these plantations. You see it in film after film after film. Uh, so Red the Rose, uh, the King Vidor film. You see it in, um, that was 1935 Paramount. I know my movies. Um, of course, Gone with the Wind. This one incredibly insane film called Way Down South, which came out in 1939, where we actually have um, slaves jigger-bugging and dancing, these 1930 dances, but they're slaves, and of course they're all very happy. And the premise of that movie is that the slave owner dies, the plantation owner dies, and the son uh, it's come, realizes that the slaves are going to have to be sold because they can't afford to keep them. So, with the help of a friendly slave, 
uh, played by Clarence Muse, they come up with a scheme so they can make money so the slaves can stay on the plantation. Sounds ridiculous, but people bought it. Another film I could reference is um, the Michael Curtiz 1940 film, uh, Santa Fe Trail, uh, with Earl Flynn, in which the villain of that movie is John Brown. Of course, John Brown, who wanted to start a revolution to end slavery, but of course, in this movie, he has to be the villain, because anybody who wants to be in slavery has to be a bad guy. But there's this one sequence in the picture where um, Errol Flynn is trapped with these escaped slaves who are, they have escaped to join John Brown. And they're trapped in a barn, and the barn's on fire, and of course, because they're slaves and they're black and they're, co they're cowards, and they're hovering in the corner while Errol Flynn, you know, puts out the fire and slaves and, and, and saves their lives. And the next in the next scene is after the whole situation, the slaves are now talking about going back to the plantation because if this is what freedom is all about, they want no part of it, as one character says. You go like, Wow. But that was the attitude. And these kind of the, the thing you have to keep in mind is that it was these attitudes about slavery and about black people, which um, form opinions about <laughs> black people, about civil rights, about everything for generations. These films, as a matter of fact, when I first wrote about this picture in 2015, um, I was surprised, but then I really would, I shouldn't have been surprised. I got a lot of comments, and I would say almost just, just over half the comments I got were from white people who objected to uh, what I said about this film, that how the characters were stereotyped, and how people were... Uh, uh, it was a lovely film, how they saw when they were kids, and how kind and wonderful the black people are. Of course, implying that not like today, black people are now really just angry and upset all the time. Gee, why can't black people be the way like they were in this movie? Uh, because they weren't even like that in this movie. Remember, this is a fantasy. This movie is a fantasy. This movie doesn't deal in any way with the reality of slavery, what it was really like, how barbaric it really it, it was really like. I mean, of course, we had films that have come up more recently, such as 12 Years a Slave. Um, of course, you have uh, Haley Jarima's uh, Sankofa, which is a different kind of picture about a slave rebellion. Uh, there is the Quilo Pontecorvo's film, Burn, which is astounding. Um... And there have been other, of course, there's Roots. And there have been other films which have to, hey, how could I forget? There's also Mandingo. You know, hey, don't get me started on Mandingo. But, but, uh, because I'll go on forever about that picture. But, um, but this was, but once again, this movie reflected attitude at the time. Now, since we have Bobby Driscoll here, uh, let me get into Bobby Driscoll, because as I said before, 
Um, Bobby Driscoll is one of those tragic stories. You heard it before. Um, for a brief period of time, he was a star. He was a real star, a movie star. But um, it ended badly. He was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sorry. I made a mistake. You're another flub. I should say Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's what I meant to say. He was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, in, I'm trying to remember what year it was in, 1937. I was going to say 1938, 1937. Um, his father was a installation installer, which at that time meant that he worked a lot with asbestos, which meant that his father was sick a lot. As we know now what asbestos will do to you. And a device of a doctor, his parents moved to California to improve his health. Uh, but while he was there, um, people evidently saw Bobby and said, Hey, we think this kid has some talent. We think he's a natural. Uh, have you thought about him becoming an actor in movies? And they thought maybe, you know, the father's too ill to work, so maybe he could bring money in. And so they tried, and they succeeded. They took him to acting teachers, and uh, eventually they started getting auditions. And he finally got his first film role in the early 40s at MGM. And it was a small role, but... People liked him, and he started getting more work. And then eventually, he got this role in Song of the South. And Disney seemed to like him, so he appeared in a couple other movies, including Peter Pan, and um, a really great RKO thriller called The Window, uh, which is about a boy who sees a murder, and nobody be nobody believes him. And he had quite a career in the 40s and to the early 50s and then as what happens with so many child actors uh, as he got older the parts became less frequent he did some work in television um he um did one really not pretty interesting movie for MGM the Scarlet Coat, a Revolutionary War film, directed by John Sturges. I'm a big fan of John Sturges, but this is definitely not one of his better pictures. Um, and eventually, work dried up. Um, he's starting having run-ins with the law. I know, I told you this story sounds familiar. And uh, eventually, in the late... No, I won't say late 50s, but more like the early 60s. Um, he started getting involved in drugs. Uh, he got arrested for drug possession, drug use. Uh, he was sent to prison for a while. And then in the er then early 60s, he moved to New York to try to restart his career, this time as a stage actor. He changed his name to Robert, which is was his name because he wanted people to forget that he was Bobby Driscoll. Uh, somehow he got involved with uh, Andy Warhol and The Factory, and which, if you're 
a guy struggling with drugs, I guess Andy Warhol and the factory is not the best place to hang out with, hang out around. Um, and he did a few experimental films for Warhol. Um, and then, uh, but he wasn't making any money. He was destitute. And then in about late 1967, perhaps, or 60, he disappeared. Nobody knows where he was. He, he completely disappeared. And then a few months later, well, I shouldn't say a few months later, but several weeks later, some kids were playing in an abandoned um, building, apartment building. And they found the body of Driscoll there. He had died of a drug overdose. He had died of a drug overdose. Now, at the time, they did not... There was no identification on him, so they didn't know who he was. So they simply buried him in a... Um, a in, in New York, in Hearts Island, where they burying people who have who are destitute, who have no relatives, no one to claim them. Um, you've probably seen it recently. People who have died from uh, what we're going through right now with the virus. People who have no family, no friends, are being buried there. Um, and then about a year later. In 1969, uh, his mother started looking for him because his father was dying, as I said, after years of working with asbestos had taken his toll. And they hadn't heard from him. They didn't know where he was. And she went to New York to try to find him. And um, eventually some... Practically two years later, they finally were able to tell his mother that they found his body. And that was the body they had found back in 68 in an abandoned tenement building. As I said before, it's a tragic story. If you've heard the story, there were so many tragic stories. I think he once, Driscoll must have made a comment. He said, like, uh, this was years after his career had ended. He said, you know, for a while they treated me like a prince. I was on a golden carpet, and then they threw me away like an old dirty rag. Uh, it's a sad story. Now, um, I should tell you about the two directors on this film, because there's a live-action director, and then, of course, there is the animation director. And the animation... I'm sorry, let me get that back. The... Um, live action director live action director is Harv Foster uh, if you don't know who Harv Foster is um, you shouldn't be surprised because to my knowledge this is the only movie he directed um, he did not really do a lot of work he did a lot of work in television that's really what he did. In the 1950s, he was an extraordinary, prolific, episodic TV uh, TV director. But in terms of features, I think it's the only feature he ever made. How he got the job, I can't tell you. Uh, but the animation director was Wilford Jackson. And Wilford Jackson is one of those animation Disney legends. He um, started 
working with Disney in the 1930s uh, on all his animated films at the time. Snow White of Snow White Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo. I mean, you, you just go down the list. I mean, later he did Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, uh, Lady and the Tramp. I mean, he's one of these legendary directors. Now, in this earlier part of his career, in the 30s, when he was doing Snow White, he was basically a sequence director, which means he supervised some sequences of the film. Um, same with Dumbo. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't until Cinderella. I'm sorry. It wasn't until this movie did he actually supervise the animation, all the animation, of which is about 25 minutes of it. Uh, as I said, he later went on to direct Cinderella and Peter Pan and later The Tramp, and he's one of these Disney legends. Now, that's interesting because let's get back into how this film got made because I talked about the stories, but... What's the story about this movie? Well, as I said earlier, Walt Disney had read the book, you know, I guess when he was a kid, the, the stories of Uncle Remus by Joel Chandler Harris. And I guess he thought, hey, this will probably make an interesting movie. And he actually started, had ideas to make this about 10 years earlier, about 1936, 1937. And by the way, this animated sequence you're seeing right here, Tar Baby, is um, from actually one of Chandler's book, which is called Un Uncle Remus and the Tar Baby, something like that, of that title. Um, but getting back to Disney, so he... Um, contacted Harris's family, and it took a long time to make a deal with the Harris family. Uh, and he held out for a lot of money, and which eventually Disney had to pay. Now, the situation Disney was at the time was that, and I'm talking about this is just after World War II. Walt Disney was hurting financially. Uh, several things had happened. First of all, uh, there was this 1941 strike, uh, which um, in which you know his animators went on strike. That really hurt Disney. I I mean he was very much hurt by that. Um, he um, had this paternalistic view of himself and his workers were one big happy family and I'm, I'm big papa and when he went on strike in 1941 it, it really hurt him and he got his revenge which I'll get to soon but this is right after the war and during the war Walt Disney like the other anim like other animation departments um just as Warner Brothers uh, MGM, um, they did a lot of work for for the U.S. military and also for morale. And most of Disney's output in the 1940s uh, was making military training films. They did make a few 
animated features, or I, I should say just a few shorts, but not a lot. And they made these training films for the government uh, at cost. So the government paid him what it cost to make these films, which means he was breaking even, but he wasn't making any money. Now, the exception of this is, that, and I should say that Song of the South is always credited as being the move, the first film to combine live action with animation. That is definitely not true. Um, it, it, it's, it's way down the list. I mean, back in the silent era, they were combining animation and live action. Crudely, but they were doing it. Uh, in the night, sorry, in the 1930s, they were doing it. And Walt Disney, um, in 1942 and 19, sorry, let me take that back. 1943 and 1944 made, um, well, let me take that back, okay? 1943. They made a short film, a, sh a feature short called Saludos Amigos with Donald Duck. And that was a cartoon short that was made for the government to promote um, the good neighbor policy. Now, I'm, I, I don't want to go too much into the weeds here, but just for the sake of explaining this, let me tell you what the good neighbor policy was. It was a policy started by FDR in order to promote better diplomatic and business trade and associations with South America. And also, if South America is with us, it will also act as additional bulwark against the Axis powers. Hitler, Mussolini, and of course, Japan. All right. That did well. And so then in 1944, they made The City Caballeros, which is a feature. Runs about 70, 70 minutes. And that also does include some live action with animation. Uh, some, not the entire film. The entire film is mainly animation. But still, that got them the idea that maybe this is a viable thing. Now, Disney had a deal at this time with RKO Pictures to release their films. And RKO Films said, well, look, it was actually cheaper to do a film that mixed live action with animation than to do a film that was all animation. So they kind of pushed Disney on the idea, maybe you think about doing this. So they decided to do this picture and um, it was supposed to have been a limited budget film filmed up wound up costing something just over two million dollars which was a huge amount of money at the time for a movie and the film actually did not um do that well at well let me rephrase that it did okay at the box office but as i will explain earlier it became very profitable for disney due to the various reissues which i'll get to in a minute now um because disney's developing this picture 
And he decides to hire a writer by the name of Dalton Redman, who I'm not familiar with, to write the script. Now, I guess he thought he was a good choice because Redman was a Southerner. And he thought that maybe hiring a Southerner to write a film that takes place in the post-Civil Rights South uh, would be a good fit. And... Turned out it wasn't. It, it it turned out that Redman was, well, let's put it bluntly. He was a white supremacist. And the script that he turned in uh, was problematic. And Disney realized he had trouble. As a matter of fact, the film was so, was so problematic that the production code... Now, at that time... Let me explain. You know, when you, when it comes to old movies, I have to explain things for you millennials out there. Sorry, I got to do it, okay? The production code was this... Um, it was an organization, but it was a set of rules uh, overseen by originally Joseph uh, Will Hayes and then later Joseph Breen and uh, the production code said there were certain it, it ran it, it, it existed from 1934 to about technically 1968 even though by 65 66 67 it was it, it really didn't exist anymore it was really falling apart and it was replaced by the rating system in November of 1968 so production code had certain rules they said there were certain things, there were things you could not show in a film. Uh, for example, you couldn't show a couple in bed together, even if they were married. You could not show them in bed together, which is why you see a lot of movies in, um, made in the 30s and 40s. Uh, you'll see a bed, only one person is sleeping in it, or there's a double bed. Or you couldn't show a toilet in a film. Think about that. Look at any movie made from 1934 to 1952 or beyond that, and you know you won't see a toilet. You see a sink, you'll see a bathtub, you won't see a toilet because it was considered offensive. Of course, um, no explicit violence. Uh, of course, profanity was out. Uh, no sex. You know, even if you alluded to it. You had to, um, you couldn't do that. You had to be very clever to get away with it. And the reason I bring in the product, and there were many, many other rules. You can look it up for yourself. But what was interesting is the production code, uh, when you, the deal was that any student that made a movie, you had to submit the script to the production code first, and they had to look it over, and they had to tell you what they objected to. And then you either had to change it, or you had to negotiate with them, or come up with a compromise, or whatever. Production code took a look at the script that Redman had written for Song of the South, his original script, and they said, you, you can't do this. I mean, even the production code said, this is, some of this stuff is beyond the pale. And Disney knew he had trouble. Uh, he wouldn't let the... And actually, the, that script got around. And um, the NAACP at the time got a hold of the script. And they objected to it 
really steadfast and they tried to get um, a meeting with Disney and he refused. Now, Disney realized he had trouble with the script and so he had to find somebody who could put the script into shape or some kind of presentable form. Now, and so he... Now, the first thing, actually, is find a black screenwriter, but there were no black screenwriters working in Hollywood at the time, uh, of course. Now, well, that's a story for another day, but there is there was one RKO film written in 1939 by two black screenwriters. And actually, I mentioned it earlier, way down south. Um which was written by Clarence Muse and Langston Hughes, and it's the first movie I know of. Studio film, not an independent race movie, like the ones that were written by Oscar Michaud, but Way Down South is the first movie I know of that was written, studio movie, that was written by black screenwriters, nevertheless. I'm, once again, going off on another tangent here. Disney says, I got trouble. So he hires a screenwriter by the name of Maurice Raff. Uh, Maurice Raff was a screenwriter. And he was an open leftist. He was very progressive. And uh, according to... And Disney hired him to do a rewrite. And Raff said himself, and I wrote this down. Uh, Raph said about when he was brought in to write the script, he said, Disney brought me in because, uh, well, I should say, this was, this is what was written about Raph, right? Raph was a minority, a Jew, and an outspoken left ringer, and he, he himself feared that the film would be inevitably Uncle Thomas. That is exactly why I want you to work on it. Disney told him, because I know that you don't think that I should make this movie. You're against Uncle Tomism, and you're a radical. Now, originally, Raph hesitated, but he realized if I could make changes in it, I could make it sort of better than what it was going to be. So he accepted the offer, and he um, he worked on it. He fell out with Redman, and Redman quit the film. And Ralph went on to, you know, work on the picture. I mean, to continue writing on the film. Now, it's it's really kind of interesting that Disney went out and hired a outspoken left winger, as he was called, to work in this film. Because as we know, what we know about Walt Disney is Walt Disney was a very conservative guy. But Walt Disney was very complex. In, in the in the 19-teens, he was a socialist. Something which kind of haunted him later on when the whole Red Scare and the Hollywood 10 and the House of Un-American Activities, all that stuff bubbled up in the 1950s. And Walt Disney became a very willing uh friendly witness. Now, he, of course, Walt Disney was not blacklisted. No way to go black, 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 blacklist Walt Disney. But there were people. Um, there were two kind of friendly witnesses. There were 
uh, those who were blacklisted, who then, to get off the blacklist, had to name names. You know, tell about people who they felt were uh, subversive. You know, Ilya Kazan, uh, uh, Jerome Robbins, the choreographer, Burl Ives, uh, Sturden Hayden. Um, they all named names. They all were blacklisted. They all named names. Um, some of them, you know, paid a price um, for that. Um, and then, of course, there were those who refused to name names. Of course, Jules Dassin, Joseph Losey, um, Howard Silva, the actor. Uh, there were many who refused. And, of course, the careers were ruined or they went to Europe or England uh, to continue their careers, uh, or uh, they re-established their careers later after the stigma of the blacklist went away. It took about a decade, um, and then there were those who uh, weren't blacklisted but wanted to show some support because they wanted to show they were all Americans. So people such as John Wayne, Robert Taylor, Adolf Manju, um, and of course Walt Disney. Uh, went and publicly uh, testified in front of the House of American Activities about the support of what they're doing and talking about Walt Disney's revenge, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Walt Disney decided to name people who he felt were un-American. And the people he named were the leaders of the 1941 strike. That's Walt Disney's revenge. So, um, as we continue on with this picture, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this film was not a success. Well, it wasn't a big success when it came out. But it um, was still very popular. And as the years went on, Disney was evidently very proud of this movie, and they released it several times uh, in the history of, in the film's history. It, as I said, it was released originally in 1946, and then it was released again in, as I said, I'm being slightly unprofessional here because I wrote down these dates, and... And trying to find out where was it? Okay, so it was released in. Um, here we go. Okay, sorry about that, folks. As I said, this is just between us. If I was doing this professionally, believe me, I would have been a whole lot better. But movie, movie released in 1946, then again in 1956 for its 10th anniversary. Then, in 1972, for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney Productions. Then it was released again the following year in 1973 as part of a double bill with the Aristocats. And then it was released again in 1980 for the 100th anniversary of Harris's books when they were first being published. And then finally, in 1986, for the film's 40th anniversary, 
and also for Splash Mountain, as a publicity for Splash Mountain attraction, we use the characters of Breer Rabbit and Breer Bear and Breer Fox at Disneyland and Disney World. Now, after 1986, suddenly Disney became, oh, what's the expression now you kids use? Uh, gee, woke? Uh, or as I prefer to say it, they had a crisis of conscience. Uh, evidently, they decided, you know, Song of the South is not a good look for us. So they essentially buried the movie. Um, oh, and I should also add that there was actually an Uncle Remus comic strip that appeared in the Sunday papers, which ran from the late 40s to 1972. So, you kind of say to yourself that, well, wait a minute. Um, Disney had no problem all these decades with the movie. Why now 1986? Well, of course, times had changed. Um, well, times had changed in... 1972, times had changed in 1973. They didn't have any problem then. But somehow, on high, they this movie became an embarrassment. And they had just decided, we're not going to show this film anywhere to anybody anymore. But, evidently, that's not true, because you're watching it right now. And um, it has been available in Europe and in Asia. Though, I don't think it is anymore, not to my knowledge. Um... And, as a matter of fact, when Disney Plus uh, was established or started streaming, uh, Disney made it very clear that uh, The Song of the South would not be shown on Disney Plus. And, to make matters, I, to me, more ridiculous, they would show Dumbo, but they would cut out the crow sequence. You know, I said, to me, I'm like, no, show Dumbo. Just don't show the Tim Burton one, you know? <laughs> you know, you want to get people upset, you know? <laughs> but I think this is really ridiculous. This is, first of all, number one is censorship. And I abhor censorship. I really do. You know, you have the right to see a picture or not to see a film. For example, for for me, for example, I will never see Hostile 2. I don't want to see it. You know, one was enough. I don't want to see a Serbian film. I've read about it. I know what happens. I don't want to see it. That's my choice. But I do not, I will not let, let me rephrase this. I will, I think it's wrong if somebody is not allowed to see the film, you should be able to see whatever film you want to see. And I'm not going to stop you from seeing Hostel 2. Go ahead, watch it, enjoy it. Have a good time on, you know, on my end. But censorship is wrong. And when it comes to the imagery in this movie, first of all, Song of the South is nowhere worse than other movies 
that dealt with the subject matter from this period at this time. Um, as a matter of fact, there were films that were even worse. So Red the Rose, the King Vito film I mentioned, is, believe it, way worse. There are other films, anti films that are set in the antebellum South and films that are set after the Civil War, during this period, uh, films that deal with slavery, or n not necessarily dealing with slavery, but films in which slavery is a part of the story. Um which are just as bad or worse. So, if Disney thinks, of course, Disney has this, of course, corporate image they want to keep, so this movie's an embarrassment. But, I don't see why they should hide this picture. I think this film can be seen and shown if you put it into context, which is what, essentially, what I hope I'm doing right now. Putting this film into context, this movie represents attitudes of the time. Uh, yes, they are politically incorrect. Um, yes, for many people, they are offensive. But, as I like to say, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? And I think, in many ways, if you want to understand this country, if you want to understand American history... If you want to understand the history of imagery and how movies and the media have informed what we think, what we believe, how we act, then you have to see a movie like this. It, I think it's essential you see a movie like this. And I think a film such as Song of the South uh, very much should be seen and analyze and discussed. Um, I think that a good uh, I way of showing this picture is to perhaps what I did uh, when I did a lecture on this film for that class or if you're really going to release this film on DVD or streaming or whatever format there should be someone to introduce the picture uh, explain what the audience is going to see, and um, afterwards have a discussion uh, with panelists or somebody to explain what we've seen and how it fits into how it fits into films of that period and films today. I oh I can't remember how long ago it was, but I taught a class. Uh, once at I taught a class um, at the um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and the class was uh, black male imagery in American movies from the silent era to modern times, and uh, the first film I showed was Birth of a Nation because I felt it was absolutely essential essential that people. Uh, see the film because I make the argument that many of the imagery the really no doubt shocking black imagery and characters you see in that movie continue on for decades after in uh, Birth of a Nation 
And the thing that struck me, which I perhaps I didn't really realize, is that most of the audience, and I should say it was packed, most of the people had never seen the film before. I They may have heard about it, but they really didn't know the picture. And so when they saw it, uh, they were stunned. They were absolutely stunned. And that was a good thing to me because that led to a really incredible conversation, um, a discussion with the audience about the picture. Um, and one thing I do remember, like the people who wrote to me telling me how they didn't understand what was so offensive about Song of the South was that I remember this one particular woman who didn't understand what was so offensive about Birth of a Nation. And um, how can I phrase this? Needless to say, she didn't stay long for the discussion afterwards. Now, uh, I think we're going to go here into the final song here with Laughing Place. Um, yeah, there's a lot of songs in this movie, all some of the two writers I told you about. But one of the things I do want to talk about here is why does this film still fascinate people? Even though it's it's still relatively hard to see, even though, like I said before, you've seen it right now. Um, and there's still ways you can see this picture. And there's still people who love this film. You know, and why is that? Why does this film have such a hold? Well, I have a theory. Um, it, it, it's... it's it, you can discuss it among yourselves, but I, I think what happened is this. I think, and I kind of touched on this before, for some people, i.e. older white people of a certain generation, it reminds them, I think, of a time that has gone by, except that that time never existed in the first place. It's a, a fantasy land of the past that never existed. Um, if you go out through history in this country, uh, there have been events that have really shaped this country. I mean, completely shaped this country. Um, 1918, you had World War One, and of course, this Spanish flu epidemic. You had the Great Depression. You had World War Two. You had the Kennedy assassination. You had 1968. Uh, you know, people think that the year we're in right now, 2020, is bad. You should have been around in 1968. You know, when we had two assassinations, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. We had the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the event that really began to turn the public against the Vietnam War. You had the 1968 
uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago and the riot in Grant Park. Uh, and then you also had an epidemic. You had the Hong Kong flu epidemic, which killed a lot of people around the world. Everything old is new again. And then, then you had Watergate in the early 70s. You had 9-11. You had Trump's election just a few years ago. And now what we're going through right now, there are events. And you know what? In terms of what's going on right now, I can't even predict what's going to happen. Maybe this country will be changed for, you know, extraordinarily, greatly. Or maybe we'll get through it with little changes. I cannot predict. We'll have to see. But the point I'm trying to make is that this country has always gone through radical changes that have radically changed the country. I should say radical events that have radically changed this country. And when people look at a movie like Song in the South, it kind of reminds them of a time basically when they were kids when they seemed like everything was perfect it's it, it telling when when you know black people were happy in their place and they weren't angry remember this film came out in 1946 this was nine years before the Montgomery a bus boycott with Rosa Parks this and the the birth of the modern civil rights movement. Uh, there always was a civil rights movement, but what I call the modern civil rights movement started with, of course, the Montgomery boycott and, of course, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. And, you know, once again, there's another event that turned this country, radically changed this country. And um, people look at these movies and they long for a past that didn't exist, as I said before. Um... It's comforting to them. I look at this film and see, to me, attitudes that were easily accepted by people at the time. Well, not by all people, needs to say. But an attitude that people had um, about race, about class, about... um, where do we fit in this world? I mean, this scene right here we're looking at with Uncle Remus and Ruth Warwick. Um, it's, believe me, things like that didn't happen. And actually, there is a scene coming up in a few minutes, which is one of the oldest tropes in films. And something I can guarantee you, believe me, it never happened. But getting back to what people were talking about, how people can even look at this film in a misty light. Um, As I said before, I wrote an article about this piece and someone, one of the persons who commented on the piece said that, oh, it's not about slavery. You know, even there's a scene in the movie where Uncle Remus um, says he wants to know more of this and decides, and at the end of this movie, he leaves the plantation forever. Well, um, since the movie through misty eyes, uh, there is a scene here you're about to see where 
Uncle Remus is going to leave, but it's not the final scene in the movie. And no, even though he is about to leave, he doesn't. But the person who commented negatively on my article is absolutely convinced that there is a scene where at the end of this movie, the final scene of this movie, where Uncle Remus um, leaves the plantation forever. There is no such scene. Right? But people want to look at this movie. I look at this from more of a historical viewpoint. People look at this movie, there are people who look at this film from a more nostalgic viewpoint. Um... And by the way, should I also mention that there really are not a whole lot of slaves who work in this plantation, as you notice. Um, usually, uh, most plantations had a lot of slaves working. Now, you perhaps could make the argument that most of them left because this was after the Civil War, but there's no mention of that. And, yes, even though they're, historically, as you saw in this picture, uh, the white children of the uh, slave owners, and even though, I'm going to say this right, right now, even though, yes, I know this takes place out of the Civil War, they're not technically slave owners. I'm still going to call them slave owners. But yes, even though the slave, the children of the slave owners in this movie play with the young black slaves, that's something that really happened. But that was an assignment. Um, it was very, very common for slave owners to assign a playmate for their children. Uh the, under, the, the, the understanding, of course, is that they were essentially a toy, a playmate. You know, there's, don't, get it, don't get it twisted, as they say. They're not, they weren't equal. The movie here assumes that there's this equalness between the black children and the white children. And they just became friends natu naturally. That wasn't the case. The case was that these children were, the black young slave children, were basically assigned to play with the children of the slave owner. So, once again, a distortion in the movie, uh, something that you saw in other movies at the time. Um, but that was par for the course at the time. Once again, this is 1946. Now... Uh, movies at the time were changing, you know, but they hadn't really changed enough at this time. So, if this movie came out in 1946, it was probably shot in late 1945, just after World War II. Um, by mid by 1947, movies had really changed because... The country had changed because they had been through a war. A war. war. Think of it this way. Something like 400,000 American soldiers were killed during World War II. 
over 600,000 were wounded. Some of them wounded so horribly that they would never be, they would never be the same again. And so you're talking about a country where you had a million men who half of them, almost half of them would never come back. Um, so by 1946, the film, the country had become more cynical. Uh, it had become more leery, perhaps. Oh, by the way, before I continue that, this is what I'm talking about, the trope. Okay, so little Bobby Driscoll is hurt, um, seriously injured. Who knows, he could be dying. And here we have the slaves outside singing mournfully. Okay, let me tell you up front, this never happened. This is a film trope that you always see in movies like this, which makes my teeth grind. I mean, it's ridiculous. As a matter of fact, there is testimony. There is written testimony. And there's also some recorded testimony from former slaves who talked about the fact that when somebody... when somebody in the slave owner's family died, whether it was the, the, the master of the house or the wife or the children... The slaves were overjoyed. I mean, of course, they couldn't express that or because they would be punished or worse. But there was no sadness. There were no mournful singing, you know, in front of the plantation. And by the way, if this movie wants to give us the idea that they are equal, or this is all one big happy family. How come they're never allowed in the house, the big house? You know, they always stay in their place in the slave quarters, which was the fact. Of course, you had house slaves and you had the field slaves. Uh, and the house slaves were, of course, those who worked in the house, usually as butlers or cooks. And then you had the field slaves who worked out in the fields. Um, I can't get into a whole history of slavery. There's a whole other conversation. But um, getting back to this period of time when this film was made, this film was an odd duck because it came at the end of 1946 at a time when the country had really changed, rat as I said, using that word again, radically. But maybe there was part of the reason for the success of the movie, the fact that um, um, it was a nostalgic film. It was a film, I mean, f people were afraid. I mean, a million men had been destroyed. Um... And was there, you know, you know, people had seen evil that they had never really seen before? Well, of course, when I said they had never seen before, of course, ignoring the evils of slavery. That's what I meant to say. But, so, but the country was shocked. 
you know, the country had gone through a very traumatic time. So, of course, a film like Film in the South, which is golden nostalgia glow of a time past that, as I said before, didn't exist, had an appeal to people. Now, as I mentioned before, this film was not the biggest box office hit. I It cost about $2 million to make, just over $2 million, which was uh, a huge amount of money at the time for a movie. And it grossed, in its original run, about $3 million. So it did make a profit, but nowhere near the kind of money that Disney had made on films such as, of course, Snow White and um, other films. It's, no, Fantasia was a flop, but Snow White and Pinocchio. So, um, which is one of the reasons why they kept releasing it. Um, as I said before, um, why Disney suddenly had a cri crisis of conscience is understandable. But, as I said before, uh, I think it's wrong for them to ban this picture. Um, other studios do not ban their films. Um, as I said, as long as you put a film in, and as I said, films, there are some film studios have made that are even worse than this one. Uh, but they managed to understand the fact that these are films that were made during a particular time, which reflect a particular attitude, which... I was going to say it's long gone, but unfortunately it's not in many cases. I have a feeling that a certain president of the United States looks at this movie, he probably screens this film at the White House once a week and says, oh, if only things could be like they were. But um, we're coming to the end of the commentary here. And, uh, or as I call it, the... Um, Everybody on exit final scene because as you see Uncle Remus thinks he's seen things. Um but I hope you enjoyed my commentary. I hope I gave you some insight into this picture and some background and uh, some a little bit more understanding of the film. And no, you don't have to feel guilty if you watch this picture. I don't feel guilty. Why should you? So, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a zippity doo day. I bid you adieu, and I'll see you at the next screening, whenever that will be.